Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse Pam McMillan. Hello Ryan, how are you today? I'm good, Pam. How are you? I'm great. It's another Tuesday. It is. You know, I uh, I joke often, Tuesday is actually my favorite day of the week. I just love it. <laughs> we need to come up with a Tuesday special song or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we'll put that on the agenda. The agenda. That's right. Hey, have you ever heard of infertility? I have. You know, I've had some friends that have struggled with that. And uh, yeah, I have. It's a sensitive subject, right? It is. It's, it is very, very... Uh, Something you don't talk around the dinner table very often. No. What about <laughs> onco-fertility? You know, um, no, I have not known anyone that's had to go through that. Um, but I do know that it's not brought up very often. No. And, you know, it's something that, um, unfortunately, some of our survivors may have to deal with. But, you know, like you said, we're here to get the hard topics answered. And I'm really excited about today's guest. And I know we're going to be um, filled with lots of knowledge. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, this, our, our uh, listeners may remember, if you haven't listened to, you need to go back and listen to uh, Dr. Teresa Baker from Texas mm-hmm. Tech here in town. Uh, and she suggested we actually reach out to her boss mm-hmm. um, to talk about oncofertility. And so we did. And here we are today. Uh, Dr. Robert Kaufman is joining us. And I know you guys listening will be uh, really, really educated after this talk because um, this is one of those difficult dis- discussions to have. Mm-hmm. So we went to the source. We went to the expert. And uh, we're thrilled to have you today, Dr. Kaufman. Thank mm-hmm. you for joining us on Beyond the Ribbon. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, um, oncofertility is one of those topics that um, we've had on our list for a little bit, and, and especially once we talked with Dr. Dr. Baker. Um, but, you know, in, in the cancer world, and this is no surprise, uh, we're starting to see earlier diagnoses, and we're starting to have great success. And so, therefore, you have younger folks living longer and younger folks being diagnosed. And so I would imagine fertility is a discussion that, if it doesn't come up, it maybe should come up. Yeah. It should. And, and currently, from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is my end, as well as the American Society of Clinical Oncology, both recommend now that uh, all young patients, and that's really people perhaps less than 40, at least be offered an oncofertility consult so we can uh, look at not only uh, treating the cancer, which is paramount, but we've got to look at quality of life after yes. that. And uh, <laughs> boys and girls, men and women who are young, place a great value on fertility and mentioned loss of fertility as one of the greatest regrets that mm. they have following successful treatment. So, uh, uh, and this is sort of a neat topic because we're getting so good at treating cancer now <laughs> we are, uh, huh? that this is, a, this is a new frontier. I remember as a, a, just as a medical student back at MD Anderson, you know, seeing leukemia really, they used the cure word in this. Uh, right. It's like, wow. And now with breast cancer and, you know, 90% of the early stage breast cancer is greater than that actually, mm-hmm. uh, uh, being cured or doing well, uh, these young women want ovarian function. They want to have children yes. um, uh, following treatment. Before we get in too deep, Dr. Kaufman, can you tell us what you do at Texas Tech so we know what kind of expert we're talking to here? 
Well, thank you. I just stepped down as chairman of the department and gave mm-hmm. that to Dr. Baker, and uh, <laughs> so we switched places. So, uh, But on a day-to-day basis, I do reproductive medicine, reproductive endocrinology, which is anywhere from children um, who don't go through puberty or have genital abnormalities um, to uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, which is my major area of research, uh, uh, to infertility, just couples, both male and female, who can't start a family. Right. And finally, I'm also a certified menopausal practitioner. Um, so I have a very large menopausal practice and deal a lot with something called premature ovarian insufficiency, which can be chemotherapy-induced or it could be a natural sure. uh, phenomenon as well. And uh, um, my real passion right now as I get older uh, is really menopausal medicine and uh, uh, what happens after those ovaries don't work. But uh, uh, I'm also a big advocate of the ovary. I think ovaries should stay in women. I think ovaries do good things. So I'm, I'm very pro-ovary. So well, I guess I, that's why we have two, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sensing some of our listeners are going, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about oncofertility and preservation. Um, so, you know, we always kind of like to start at the beginning and say, okay, so if I'm diagnosed today and I, you know, I'm just not, I don't have a family or I'm not married or I'm not ready to not, you know, I'm not ready to stop having children. How does that discussion get started? I mean, or is it, is it brought up by the oncologist or is it usually patient initiated or how's that go? Well, it should be brought up by the oncologist. As I alluded to earlier, the American Society of Clinical Oncology recommends that this topic be brought up in all people, particularly those less than 40, and uh, particularly in children, uh, especially in children as well, too. So that should start on the oncology side. But those of us on the infertility or reproductive medicine side should be receptive to that. And uh, so when we get a referral here in uh, the panhandle, uh, we have... Uh, sort of a office policy that those people will be seen within 24 hours. So uh, I'll stay late. I'll see them on a non-clinic day and uh, and go through everything. Um, yeah. We can go through that and and that we start with you know what cancer do you have? Uh, I talk to the oncologist. What is the proposed treatment? Right. Uh, because we'll calculate what the chances of having ovarian or testicular preservation. Uh, based on several factors, and that's critical to know. So there's the conversation mm-hmm. between um, reproductive endocrinologists and clinical oncologists, and uh, to get as much information and share as much information. Sure. And then, of course, once the consultation is done, we get it back to the oncologist. And uh, right. the hardest decision is if they do go to some more advanced uh, fertility options, such as IVF or uh, egg or uh, embryo cryopreservation, we're talking about two to four weeks before they can start uh, chemotherapy. Right. And right. Uh, is that feasible? Sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a, I mean, it's, it's, it's comforting. Not a, it's, a, it's not a short conversation. It's, yeah, I was going to say, it's comforting <laughs> to know that this decision is not entered into quickly and lightly, mm-hmm. although the, the speed at which um, someone can get in to see you, yeah. to me, Pam, would be extremely comforting to know I don't have to put off treatment mm-hmm. to even get in yeah. to decide if this is something that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And for some of our survivors, I feel like once they get the diagnosis, maybe their focus is on just fighting the cancer. Right. And to hear that maybe, okay, when they process that, it doesn't have to take a long time to get into a doctor if they want this option. So you talked about treatments. Um, can you go in depth about some of the treatments that are available for our survivors? Okay. 
Well, that's that's a long part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And first, we we need to establish what cancer they have. Is it right. estrogen receptor positive, for instance, in breast cancer? Uh, is it boy or girl? You know, what are right. we mm-hmm. what are we dealing with? How old are they? Children? Do they have a boyfriend or girlfriend? Do they have a family? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all going to change the the discussion. If a young woman, twenty five year old, comes in with breast cancer and doesn't have a male factor in her life, we're not talking about embryo prior cryopreservation uh, because there's not a male factor there. So uh, uh, there's various grades we can do. Um, The first thing we try to do is figure out what is the chance that sterility is going to happen. And because if you have a prepubertal child, the chances are probably pretty small. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, it depends on what agents are used, and we can go through the chemotherapy drugs and we can have a little calculation we can do to give a sure. rough idea yeah. and it's just a rough idea but uh um and uh so we try to figure out what the cancer is what the the, the chemotherapy is going to be is there going to be radiation involved if there's radiation is it in the brain or is it to the pelvis or where is it going to go uh, at that point and mm-hmm. uh, um, then we can decide where they want to go with it at that point. And unfortunately, we had to have that discussion about cost as well, too, uh, uh, which is a whole different issue. Uh, it's always a challenge for me. And I, for me, I always make sure that I'm not rushed during this because the patients always have the deer in the headlights uh, look because they probably just found out a day or two or three beforehand right. what they're going into. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, they're still trying to process that. and. Uh, um, and here I am. And so I, it's, it's going to be an hour consultation where I'll sit down in a comfortable chair and, and talk right. mm-hmm. and, uh, and give them some homework to think about. And uh, um, I think people change their minds too, which is okay. So, uh, sure, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the nice thing about it too is, is that this resource is here in town, mm-hmm. you know, um, that you're here. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, they may have to go to, uh, as we'll get into discussing a little bit, they may have to go out of town if they decide to do IVF, but in order to make these determinations and start that process, you're here locally. Mm-hmm. And that's a resource. I mean, I honestly was not really aware that, that this is one of your areas. And so I hope that our, our listeners are getting that piece right away is that this is here locally. Mm-hmm. And so once you start to have that discussion and you have that talk, um, I guess the next kind of discussion maybe it leads into options. Mm-hmm. And so could you walk us through some of those options? Okay. And there are a bunch of options. And every person, every couple, every family has to decide what's going to work for them. Um, and uh, the first thing is you can do nothing and just hope for the best. And sometimes that's not a bad idea or it's a feasible idea in a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, the youngest, and let me talk about women now because uh, the, the eggs are quite as sensitive to chemotherapy as the testes are. This, this, um, um, but, um, you know, a 15-year-old has a very good prognosis with most chemotherapies because they're still you know, probably 100,000 eggs uh, still floating around there. Mm -hmm. If you're 35 or 40, the prognosis is going to be worse. So we have to look at age uh, very much. And uh, a lot of times, 20-year-old, 18-year-olds say, well, I'm, I'm looking at the chances of having ovarian function are really pretty good because I have a lot of eggs. The chemotherapy they're going to use is not really ototoxic or cytotoxic or, or, or toxic to the eggs. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll just do nothing uh, mm-hmm. at that point and hope for the best. And right. for those who want to do that, I say if there's an issue with irregular menses in a woman uh, or premature ovarian failure, 
uh, loss of ovarian function, come see me. Um, I deal with that a lot as well, too. It is not the end of the, the road at that point. Uh, quality of life has a lot more than having children. Not having hot flashes and vaginal dryness is a huge quality of life issue, sure, mm-hmm. sure. Uh, which many suffer. So, uh, so nothing is one thing they can do. Now, uh, things we do here is we can use medication to shut down the ovaries. That works best in younger women, not so well in 40-year-olds at that point. And again, it depends on chemo and mm-hmm. other factors as well. Um, and that can be administered. We have a certain blood tests we do now. Uh, a lot of our oncologists in town will give them the drug, which is called luprolide. Um, I, I, we prefer, I prefer to see them first because we can measure certain functions, areas of ovarian function with ultrasound. Um, and, and we have the ultrasonographers that do this. Uh, the hospitals don't. Um, um, we can look at something called animalarian hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, inhibin B, looking at various hormones, which give us an idea of the ovarian blood supply, sort of a rough idea. Mm-hmm. It's not an exact number. Um, uh, when chemotherapy is over, we can remeasure those sometimes shortly after chemotherapy, sometimes um, weeks later, and give them a good idea of where we're going. Are the ovaries going to start functioning again? Because it may be up to two years before menses oh. resume. So it's this, like putting the ovaries to sleep, and then mm-hmm. s- once you stop that medication, it yeah. wakes it kind of yeah. up. And to- exactly, and what it does, it does really two things. Luprolide does mm-hmm. specifically, which is the most common one used, is it decreases ovarian blood supply, and that helps protect the ovaries from certain chemotherapies like cisplatinum and carboplatinum. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other way it works, it just tells the ovaries to quit working. Uh, <laughs> chemotherapy, uh, what is happening during a woman's reproductive life is more and more eggs are maturing every month. It takes about 14 to 16 months for an egg to completely mature before it's released. And uh, we'll lose those actively maturing eggs. And what chemotherapy does, interestingly does, it accelerates the process. So when you kill the, the uh, what are called the antral follicles, which are the getting ready to release eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, I just made that word up. Sounded good to me. sounded really good. <laughs> Uh, I'm from Texas, you know, we can say, uh, but uh, um, it accelerates that process. So we want to turn off the, 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 what's called apoptosis or rapid maturation of the oocytes or eggs during that time. So uh, Lupron works both ways by decreasing ovarian blood supply and shutting off the uh, ovarian cycles, uh, since you're, or more specifically egg maturation. Mm-hmm. Now there's a second drug that we have now works faster. One of the problems of Lupron, and we talked about this interval that you had to be willing to wait. And again, this is again a conversation I have with the oncologist. Can they wait two to four weeks? Um, if you lose Lupron and say that's all they're going to do, they're not going to do IVF. And mm-hmm. we'll get into that in a moment, I'm sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you ought to wait at least two weeks because it, it takes Lupron about two to three weeks to fully shut down the process. Mm. There is a newer drug which not, has not been studied now, which is called a gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonist um, uh, called Elagolix. And theoretically, that should work almost immediately oh. for those who just want to use medication mm-hmm. and um, see if they can shut things down. Now, we've not done it here yet. Uh, I'm sure it's in clinical trials right now because it works faster than Lupron. And uh, yeah. my fear is you get a Lupron shot today as they start chemotherapy tomorrow. 
you're going to lose a lot of the benefit of Lupron by going ahead at that point. Now, again, the patient has the final say. They say, you know, I want to get going on chemo. So that's, they get to say. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's part of our consultation is if you get Lupron or Luprolide, it's going to be two weeks. and um, for those who can't wait two weeks, Elagolix is going to be an interesting um, uh, drug to use to sure. consider. One more tool in your box, right? Yeah, so, oh my goodness! And, so, so we're hearing nothing, and then we hear the 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 putting the ovary to sleep or uh-huh. slowing the ovary down. Okay. And then what else is there? Then okay. other options. Well, next thing we go to assisted reproductive technology and address boys or men first. They can do semen storing. Mm-hmm. Very easy, very mm-hmm. relatively inexpensive to do, uh, easy to get a specimen at that point. That's a problem for teenage boys. Don't want to talk to mom and dad about that, but sure, uh, sure. Uh, hard conversation. So we try to get the boys away from the parents about that. But uh, uh, for girls, it's a bigger uh, issue. And uh, there's three basic things we can do now and uh, we don't do this here, but uh, we work with the Uncle Fertility Network um, and my nurse has the direct numbers and we know who to get through sure. uh, and say, we have somebody who wants to do IVF. Um, how fast can you see them? And they'll see them within two or three days, oh, uh, yes. almost invariably. We work a lot with Colorado with this, but there are other members of the Uncle Fertility Network and they're all over the country. So if you have relatives in Chicago, we'll call Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, so big centers, big centers. The big centers generally have them. Uh, there's, again, a national network that of people interested in this area. Um, um, but with um, uh, if there's a husband or a steady male involved, then we can do traditional in vitro fertilization and get an embryo, go ahead and get the eggs, uh, uh, fertilize them, mm-hmm. uh, and get an embryo and put those in the freezer until time that the transfer can be done four or five years, six years later. That is uh, highly successful. That's sort of traditional in vitro fertilization right. that most most people think about mm-hmm. at that point. The problem is you got to have uh, either a husband or a steady male partner to do that. Right. What about a twenty year old who's going? God, never kissed a boy. So, um, <laughs> uh, and in those situations, we can now go to oocyte or egg preservation. That's a real science now, and uh, uh, the eggs are the ovaries rather are stimulated just like. Um, you would for embryo mm-hmm. uh, formation, but they freeze the eggs and they called vitrification now, which is a rapid freezing. It was interesting, embryos froze much better than eggs until they, in the last few years, have developed really good ways to freeze eggs now in mm-hmm. women. And uh, um, so that's a very real technology now. And uh, finally, there's something experimental, and, and many of the Oncofertility Networks are doing ovarian tissue cryopreservation, where you either take one ovary or part of an ovary out, and that requires laparoscopy to do that, but uh, that can be done very quickly and heal very quickly uh, from that procedure. And they can actually freeze ovarian tissue. Um, and the hope is, and it's been done um, in New York and other places, where they replace that tissue later in life. And uh, ovary is pretty amazing how it can get its blood supply back when you put it back in. Wow. And, um, and the eggs can uh, develop inside the body. Um, they had to be retrieved, of course, for in vitro fertilization. But right. that's considered experimental. Right? That's, again, ovarian tissue cryopreservation yeah. is considered experimental. There are some centers that have a, a, a group that it does this as a research project. Right. The nice thing about mm-hmm. that, 
that is probably free if it's a research project. That's right. <laughs> yes, whereas these others are not free. Yeah. So but we're not quite there where that's, a, that's an accepted technology, but we're getting there. So um, with IVF, there's a process um, and there's mm-hmm. medication given. Is there a risk for somebody that has cancer with the medications that are given through that process? There can be, and that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the need to delay two to four weeks, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes less than that. And, and there's specific protocols depending on where the patient is in her cycle. I right. mean, uh, traditionally with IVF, you start with, you know, the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, go from there. But say you just ovulated or you're in the second half of the cycle, there, there are protocols now where uh, egg maturation can be done very quickly and you don't have to wait for a period to occur. So, mm-hmm. But in generally speaking, we tell the patient and, and the oncologist that we're looking at two to three, maybe four weeks uh, before they can undergo chemotherapy. And is that possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, that's a, a group decision. That's a, uh, whether to do that or not. And mm-hmm. if they need laparoscopy, that might slow it down a little bit. But the good thing about the Uncle Fertility Network um, centers is they get to these patients very quickly. It's like our 24-hour rule. They have something close to that as well, too, to, yeah. to get things moving. And, uh, and the patients have to decide, is it worth waiting that long? And... Uh, and I think the most important thing is in most cases, certainly not all, and I have to defer my oncology colleagues for this, mm-hmm. would there be harm in waiting two or four weeks um, mm-hmm. uh, to do treatment? And uh, The decision that the patient and oncologist need to make together. Sure, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of goes mm-hmm. back, Pam, um, to several of our conversations, right? The patient needs to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it, it is important, but yet in this case, maybe the physician might know best, like we cannot mm-hmm. delay treatment, right. you know, and, and sometimes I'm sure that's a, a an incredibly hard discussion to have mm-hmm. um, from the physician to the patient, because as you say, you know, you, you always want to help the patient and do exactly kind of mm-hmm. what's best and what they want and how they, and it, it, it those, comes back to that one word, right, Pam? Communication. We kind of like that word around yeah, here. <laughs> we talk a lot about that, right? We do. We, we so, do. you know, I'm curious because, again, our listeners know I'm non-clinical. And, and so sometimes they may wonder where, where Ryan goes. We kind of joke about that all the time when we have these clinical discussions. But is there is there, aside from the fact of whether there's, like for a woman, um, when you're talking about um, embryo uh, uh, cryo-freezing or egg cryo-freezing, is there, from the male standpoint, whether they, there is a male in the picture, but is there a, an advantage over the two? Like one is way more successful. I think you may have mentioned that the embryos, you talk about they used to, they used to freeze easier and do better, but is there, is there a true uh, advantage of one over the other? The embryo crop reservation has gotten to be pretty good now. So with the new vitrification process, that's a very viable thing. It generally comes down to the male factor. Okay. Is there, is there a, a, a sperm donor? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, a husband or right. boyfriend who's available at that time. And uh, generally, uh, most programs will go to embryo cryopreservation. If there's some uncertainty, um, then certainly oocyte or egg cryopreservation is the way to go. Right. Mm-hmm. And is there a time frame that those last once they're frozen? That's like a, a good question. We know that embryos have been frozen for well over 10 years successfully now. Um, I'm less sure the data on oocytes. I think uh, there's good data on five years now. Uh, oh. So they can stay frozen for a long time. So long and, enough and replace them. Long mm-hmm. enough for them to finish their treatment, 
get off of any endocrine therapy, you know, th- anything that they've got going on mm-hmm. and then have that discussion. And the chances are likely that the, the, the embryos, of course, that 10 years, but the, even the eggs are still viable. Yeah, exactly. So um, now there's a cost to storing it, correct? That is. And that's one of the bigger problems. Mm-hmm. And what I see in my point is that uh, uh, the poor patient just got this diagnosis and just got an idea of what chemotherapy or surgery or both is going to be at this point. Mm-hmm. And they're a deer in the headlights, which is uh, very understandable uh, mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. And uh, then the question is, how much does this cost? Well, freezing semen is easy and pretty and expensive. Uh, uh, but undergoing an IVF cycle, we're probably talking at least eight to ten thousand um, uh, dollars as a direct cost, uh, since insurance, at least in Texas and most states, currently doesn't cover it. So, uh, yeah. so Do there's you, that large financial cost they have to look at as well. How successful is the first IVF? Generally, if they're going to get, you know, if it's a young patient, the chance of getting several eggs and embryos out of that is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Now, the embryos depend to some degree on the husband as well, but Mm -hmm. uh, the younger the patient, the better quality of oocytes we get. And Mm -hmm. that explains, for instance, people ask, why is Down syndrome more common when you're 35 or 40. The reason is that we as humans release the best oocytes, the healthiest oocytes when we're young. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all should get pregnant when we're 20. But <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that didn't happen here. Um, no. I was almost a grandfather when I had my first child. So, um, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fortunately, my wife wasn't. So yes. <laughs> what about donor eggs? Okay. Donor eggs is another thing we've not talked about surrogacy, mm-hmm. but uh, very, very reasonable thing to do. And um, um, in the case of breast cancer, there'll be uterine conservation. If, um, um, and uh, in those situations, there could be a donor egg mm-hmm. and use the husband's sperm. And we always tell the family that kid is 100% yours at that point. And uh, um, and you don't have to discuss it with everybody in the world either. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. That sure. decision. But donor oocytes and for, for men, donor sperm are very day-to-day, reasonable, uh, commonplace technologies. Mm-hmm. And so I, we want to see the uterus kept for that reason as well, too. And we'll see that sometime with um, uh, ovarian tum- bilateral ovarian tumors um, where both ovaries have to come out. And uh, my residents say, why don't you just take the uterus out? She doesn't need it. And I said, oh, stop right there. I mean, <laughs> this uh, is a real teachable moment right here. A isn't very it? teachable moment because this 20 year old woman, bilateral ovarian tumors, and really no ovary left, uh, has a uterus that works just fine. So she's a great candidate for a donor embryo or a donor egg using her husband's sperm at that point. And there's a big national network called the Snowflake Foundation. There's others, but. Uh, uh, where women have excess embryos, uh, that they're more than happy to donate to other women uh, who want them. So uh, wow. uh, mm-hmm. finding a donor embryo is not actually that hard, and certainly finding a donor oocyte, a donor egg, or donor sperm is very easy. Mm-hmm. Is there any other options besides the ones that you just told us all about? Well, there's always adoption, uh, too, but uh-huh. I never forget adoption. That's um, right. And, um, um, you know, I think a lot of these families make the best patients because they've worked through a hardship. And uh, sure. so adoption is always part of the infertility discussion and part of this discussion as well, too. 
At what point um, is it, I guess, too late to come and see you? Is there a point or is it never too late? Well, it's ideal to do this before chemotherapy or, mm-hmm. or radiation is started. That's the ideal time at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes we do see people who have finished chemo or are about to finish chemo, and their question is, am I going to have periods again? Mm-hmm. And again, we can do some general calculations using age, you know, the cancer they had, the chemo they had, the radiation they had, how much radiation did you get, where was it given, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And uh, come up with a rough idea. And uh, then the longer it, that one takes to resume menses after chemotherapy, the worse the prognosis. Uh, but the average is three to six months in younger women. If you go two years, the chances of of having many viable eggs is pretty small, but it's not zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Pam, something just struck me, and this is something that we've talked about on, on various occasions. This could be scary. Yeah, everybody buck, buckle in. Hold on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's... It's never too late mm-hmm. and, and you have options, right. you know, and we've talked about that on, on, on several different, you know, discussions that we've had on our, on our podcast. Like, you know, there are choices mm-hmm. and, you know, it's okay to have that discussion and bring it up and be your advocate and then say, I want to go talk to somebody and yep. I need to talk to somebody. And therefore, hopefully they would feel more comfortable making that decision and knowing I covered all my bases and I can live with the, whatever happens in the end. And I know that there are resources. There are resources. Lots of them. Well, you know, and it's, I mean, I'll be honest, Dr. Kaufman, I, in, in getting ready for this and, and doing my homework, Pam, um, I was not really aware of all the options. I mean, I, you know, you always kind of hear about just IVF and you hear about this, but, and, and banking your egg or banking the sperm. But I mean, the tissue preservation is really intriguing, you know, to be able to take part of the ovary out and then freeze it and then re-implant it. I mean, it's just, it's so intriguing and who knows where we'll be. Yeah. And that's, I think that'll be a real technology within the next 10 years, hopefully. Wow. Uh, Speaking of that, is there anything else that's coming like new and things that they're trying or cutting edge? You've mentioned the, uh, the other drug, the new drug that comes out or potentially in in Mm -hmm. clinical trials, looking at kind of a faster, um, preservation of the ovary or kind of putting it to sleep, if, if it you will, faster. you know, mm-hmm. and then the other, uh, with the, the tissue, is there any other kind of new things that's on the horizon that you're aware of? Well, they're looking at different drugs. Um, and now if we talk about breast cancer, the level of estrogen that women achieve during egg stimulation can be a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, your estrogen level goes up during egg stimulation, five, 10 times the normal uh, level. And, uh, uh, using it, certain drugs like letrozole, now Lerfamara is a brand name, no longer make Famara, but mm-hmm. uh, letrozole actually has very high success rates for getting eggs and also for keeping estrogen levels lower. When they've looked at some of the studies, um, the, the subsequent pregnancy success rate, uh, number of embryos they get, number of eggs they get is just as good with letrozole as with some of the other stimulation protocols they have. And there, we think there's a protective effect of using letrozole during the stimulations as well. It's not for everybody. And again, it's gonna work more successfully in a young person than uh, somebody who's 35. So. Sure. Mm-hmm. Young gets key. It is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, quite honestly, let's be real, right? Younger folks are, are in that stage. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say older folks are not wanting to still have another child, but it's, it's very important. 
and uh, to address the, all these concerns and these issues. Mm-hmm. So during, okay, they start chemo, they've had the discussion with you. How often do they see you through the process of treatment? Is it, okay. Or is it after treatment that they come and see you? Usually after treatment. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, if we're administering Elagolix or Lupron, um, we can see them. Usually the oncologists do that. But uh, uh, for those who do that, again, it's important that we do some testing before they start that because mm-hmm. that's very valuable data for us to have. If, if the oncologists haven't drawn that, we don't know what we're dealing with. And We'll repeat those numbers again after uh, chemotherapy, maybe three or six months later, and give us a rough idea of whether or not uh, function is coming back. So, you always got to have a baseline and then follow up. Follow mm-hmm. up and communication. And I know. Communication. I know. What about um, my thought process is you are diagnosed with breast cancer and you have a nurse navigator. Um, and you want to have this talk also. It's important to include her because she can um, help you get in with yes. Dr. Kaufman and make that process a little bit easier. Absolutely. You That's know? the most important part of the yes. team to get, get, get through this. I, you know, and I, I tell you, you know, mm-hmm. some people always say, oh, it's so hard to get in. Oh, I can't, it'll be difficult to get in. Mm-hmm. Just again, I just go, think back, you know, 24 hours. We want to see them, you know, quick as we can mm-hmm. and, and get in and see them. My nurse is Debbie Morrison. Is just I'm very blessed to have her. Mm-hmm. Knows how important this is, and she gets a call from a patient, nurse navigator, some our oncologist. Uh, she knows that I get beeped and say we have one. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not what you know; it's who you know. <laughs> it truly <laughs> Debbie is. Debbie uh-huh. is probably a person you want to know. <laughs> it, yes, it truly. It truly is. And I tell you, somebody has to keep me straight. <laughs> well, and 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 what better than a nurse to do that, right? And which is exactly. why, which is why I have Pam, and Pam keeps me in line here. Those we of you can... that know uh, us, you, you know, Pam keeps me in line for sure at the center. <laughs> yes, um, Dr. Kaufman, we always like to leave this podcast on a positive note. We are sponsored by Pete's Car Smart Kia, so we would like to hear your Pete's powerful moment in, in this realm of what we've talked about. God, there's so many of them, but uh, um, and they've been all around this area. You know, I think the greatest one is is finding somebody resumes ovarian function um, after uh, chemotherapy radiation and go on to have a baby. Sure, um, uh, that's a, just a huge special moment for for me, uh, the family, my nurse. I mean, all of us involved with uh, taking care of them. Um, um, and I mean, there's just so many of them out there as well. Just being cured and having mm-hmm. ovarian right. function is huge. Menopause, you know, has a, a, many women don't necessarily want to, um, have a child. They may, but they, it's important that they maintain menstrual function and, and hormonal function. So a lot of times when that first period comes back that they're almost sort of excited. It's hard to believe in it. Uh, Something you that, celebrate. Uh, I have to think about that. that my body still works you yes. know, and, mm-hmm. and that there's been some success at preserving ovarian function. I mean, ovaries are great things. As we mentioned, they produce that wonderful hormone called estradiol. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, uh, so that's, that's another great moment for many people when they have that period, they say, well, gosh, just, we got to talk about contraception now, if you don't want to <laughs> get pregnant right now. Yes. Um, so it, it, it's, it's all sort of fun and, um, what a blessing to have a little baby after something so mm-hmm. devastating. Yeah. And you know what the great thing is? There's considerable data now on pregnancy after breast cancer. Mm-hmm. 
And believe it or not, long-term survival is better if you have a baby after breast cancer. Oh, wow. Uh, when they compared to age-matched and um, stage of the cancer, et cetera. Uh, there's been several um, retrospective studies looking at that. And because the fear is, for breast cancer survivors, I had estrogen receptor positive right. cancer. I don't want to go through nine months of high estradiols. Mm-hmm. Again, it's what we're calling the gap hypothesis now. There's something about five years of no estrogen. Um, and either using hormone therapy at that time or you know, a baby, which is nine months of very high estrogen levels, those women do not have a higher recurrence rate and their long-term survival is higher. Wow. Uh, And statistically significant. And I I can't explain that. I'm not sure anybody has an explanation. But uh, every study, they've been fairly small studies, admittedly, um, have shown the same thing. That's a positive study. We want to tell people, and that comes out during the Oncal Fertility Consult is, Let's look five years from now or 10 years from now. Uh, is this going to be bad? Probably not. It's probably wow. going to be good. Mm-hmm. That's you, exciting. I, I get amazed at, with a, a lot of the, the 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 new and cutting edge data and things that come out in our podcast. You know, it's like, <laughs> it is really exciting. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, like, yeah, exactly. So a longer, long-term survival um, and it's not detrimental is what is what it, that study shows. Right. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. One last thing before we go. How did they get a hold of yes. you? Yes. How can, how can our folks get in touch with you if they need to? Okay. I can be reached to the Texas Tech Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and uh, I may get in trouble if I give you the direct number to my nurse. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> She might not like you for that. Um, uh, just the general number will probably be just good. <laughs> Um, um, I can see her saying, don't you dare. Um, uh, our general number is 414, I think it's 5650. Um, and it's the Department of Obstetrics Gynecology at Texas Tech. And uh, although, again, we don't do IVF here, we are very affiliated with Oncal Fertility Network and know who to call. And, uh, and you know, for some of the more conservative things, we can do that here as well as the follow-up as well, too. Sure. Wow. We have great we resources here, here in town that mm-hmm. I'm not aware of. We do, Pam. Mm-hmm. You know, we've said this before. We have fantastic physicians in this town. Mm-hmm. We're so blessed. We are. And I feel lucky to be able to share this information with our listeners. Because mm-hmm. I would bet many of our listeners probably had no idea Dr. Kaufman even existed mm-hmm. or that this kind of stuff was available. So no. what our listeners need to do is put this in the back of your mind. And when a family member or a friend or uh, a loved one or someone you know that's diagnosed or is uh, in treatment or is diagnosed, make sure they know that there's options. Mm -hmm. There's options out there. And and again, as Dr. Kaufman said, it's not too late. It isn't. It communication is. and it's not too late oh gosh i tell you pam i love i love our podcast I, the conversations we have are so i mean i'm very educated after leaving these podcasts i am too as well and i hope our listeners are too and i hope they do what we like to say um click all the buttons right. share like and um, subscribe um, and as always make sure that you let us know if you have any topics that you would like to cover we would be happy to find an expert um, and do our research and learn more that's right that's right you know uh, they can hit us up at the cancer survivorship center at 331-2400 
806-331-2400. And uh, we'll be happy to visit with them and uh, put them in the right direction. And then also, definitely, if they've got some ideas or topics they want to hear, uh, we'll find somebody. We're, we're pretty good at locating some good experts, aren't we? We're, we're Google experts. That's right. Uh, we're not the experts, but no. we can find some. That's for sure. Well, I tell you what, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. And be sure to join us next week as we have another great expert for you and uh, sharing great information. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.